Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction, the podcast for readers, writers, and fans of science fiction. This is the Don't Forget to Pack the Books episode. Let me apologize first for an extra two weeks of silence. I try to release a new show twice a month, but holidays and life got in the way. But I'm happy to say I'm back and excited to have as my guest someone who has written a book that's set in two worlds. Worlds that are parallel, or maybe it's better to say that they're divergent. Kay Chess's short stories have been recognized by the Nelson Algren Literary Award and the Pushcart Prize, and she is the author of the novel Famous Men Who Never Lived. And she's on the line with me now from her home in Rhode Island. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm so happy to be here with you. How are things in Rhode Island tonight? small and snowy. We got a couple of inches and everyone's freaking out because it's the first one of the season. Yeah, it's very cold in New York and we got our first snow too. I guess we're not that far away from each other actually. When this airs, maybe it'll be warm and sunny, climate change. Oh my, so sad. Sorry to bring down the party, gosh. Well, I'm going to take a guess that at some point you actually lived in New York City and maybe you even lived in Brooklyn since so much of... (laughs) Famous Men Who Never Lived is actually set there. So have I guessed correctly? You're on to me, yes. I tried to make it a multi-borough story, but you'll notice they never go to Staten Island. And you obviously love the city because it's affectionately or it's sort of intimately portrayed, I think. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I do love the city, but I feel like you could come away from my book thinking I hated it. How come? Well, I think it's hard to establish distance between your protagonist and yourself as writer sometimes, and the main character in the book is not very happy to be in our New York City. Let me just say, first off, the title is great, Famous Men Who Never Lived. It does everything a title should, I think. It gives a sense of what the novel is about. It's intriguing. It invites questions that really are best answered by picking up the book and reading it. So I wondered, was it a title that came to you right away? I don't remember how I came up with the title, but that's been its title since it was a work in progress and no one ever asked me to change it. I actually don't like it that much. And I had, I came up with alternates and asked friends to vote on them, but everybody else likes it a lot. I don't like it because it has men in it, you know, like I, I, it's men in the old school style, meaning people in general, but I, I don't, it's, it's a book that's about a woman. So it seems strange to me. So as I said in the introduction, your book is about divergent worlds. Could you tell our listeners about these two worlds, how they're different, and what, if anything, do we know about their relationship to one another? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the central mysteries that concerns the characters, though I'm not sure it's actually too important, is how did these two worlds come to be different? But it takes place in our world, but the characters, the primary characters in the book are from a world that was identical to ours, as far as anyone knows, up until the early 1900s, and then little things started to be different, and those little things had a butterfly effect. You know, let's say Stalin was never born, so 
millions of Ukrainians and Russians and Poles were never killed by Stalin and stuff like that. You know, each, each little change led to other changes. So by around 2019, things are quite different. Yet the book takes place in New York City, which is a very old city. So a lot of the infrastructure and buildings and physical surroundings are identical to what those characters from that other world are used to. And yet all of the pop culture of the 20th century didn't exist. All of their favorite books and music was never written or composed. So that's, that's sort of the setting. Um, and I set the book in our world, but I am thinking about these characters who are longing for their own home, which I, you know, which doesn't exist. And can you say a little bit about how these characters who are essentially refugees from, from their world, how they got to our world? Through a little bit of science fiction hand-waving, you know, there's an experimental gateway that was erected in Cavalry Cemetery. And after a crisis, after nuclear war broke out, basically, New Yorkers chosen randomly by lottery were sent through in groups of 100 at a time into our world. And then after a while, no more people are coming through. And the folks who have already passed through the gateway don't know why they had to stop sending more. There's only 156,000 of them, which is a lot, but it's also very small number if you think about those being the only witnesses to your shared past. And they're essentially war refugees. They are immigrants fleeing something horrible, and they carry, as a result, a lot of trauma with them. And that trauma is amplified by what you've described, which is the divergent history. So they're in a place that's both familiar and very unfamiliar. And there are lots of details you have in the story about these these things that, in a way, are, are little, but they have a big impact on their psyches. Like, they're tramways in their New York, not subways. And they find the subways very suffocating and strange that you go underground. And there's one character who has a swastika tattooed on his neck. And, and in his world, it's a sign of peace, or it's certainly a neutral sign. And he wonders why he can't get a job and why people are responding weirdly to him. And eventually someone tells him what a swastika means in our world. And he, he ends up getting the most visible swastika removed. And it's something very poignant about not understanding things that are so basic to our culture that they just don't get. I think on, on one hand, each of us is very attached to our own past and to the tangible symbols of that past. I see so much 90s nostalgia these days, especially for folks that are my age. I'm in my early 30s, and I was a teenager in the 90s, and there are just like a million reboots of TV shows that were first aired in the 90s and quizzes so you can find out what music video you are personality-wise, stuff like that. Like we everybody wants a trapper keeper. It's like, even though our world hasn't gone anywhere, we're really attached to the world of our youth. And I think that kind of nostalgia, of course, would only be heightened if that world was gone. So that's one thing I'm, I'm playing with in the book. And then it's just, it was really fun for me as a writer to think about, there have been so many thousands of years of human history, but to think about all the things that happened just since 1900, light beer was not invented until the 70s, I learned during the writing and editing of this novel. So that would be something that might not exist in this other world, for instance. 
the fact that the swastika was co-opted by the Nazis from a, a Buddhist symbol. It was fun to find those things that were potentials um, that could have gone very differently, both in large scale world history, but also in just small scale, funny coincidences, inventions that might not have ever been invented, stuff like that, and um, find them and exploit them to a dramatic purpose. And how did you keep track of all these things? Because there's a lot of slang that they use. They have to learn our slang. There, there are a million products, of course, that they're not familiar with. And even their computers don't work once the batteries die. They can't retrieve their files and their pictures. There's so many little things, but it's a whole world that you evoke through these tiny details. So did you create a glossary for yourself or a big chart on your wall, or how did you manage that? I didn't. You know, I think a lot of it happened in the editing process where you can kind of seed these things in and look, make it appear that you know more than you know. So that's part of what's going on. But then also I think there was a lot of play involved for me as a writer just thinking about different possibilities and writing a lot of little pieces that ended up not getting incorporated in the book so that 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 impression that I might know more is actually correct because there's stuff that I had to cut because it's not doing anything for the main narrative thrust of the book. Uh, But there was a lot of sort of weird research and and the kind of research that's fun to do as a non-expert, you know, just Wikipedia crawling. Yeah, Wikipedia is a great resource when you're looking for little details like that when you're trying to write fiction. Imagine a world where Wikipedia didn't exist. It could have happened so easily. So true. They're doing their fundraiser right now. You'll get a pop-up if you go there. We should all donate. Yes, I noticed that. That's right. Everyone go, even though it's way past Giving Tuesday, by the time this comes (laughs) out, it's Giving Tuesday now as we record our voices. So go, go to Wikipedia or your favorite worthwhile charity, especially one that supports knowledge. Refugees. And refugees. Yeah, absolutely. And writers. So let me ask about the main refugees in your story. You have two characters who are kind of the main characters of the story. One in particular, Helen, or Hel, as she's uh, nicknamed, and her lover or partner, Vikram. And they're known, like all the refugees, as UDPs, which stands for Universally Displaced Persons. And... Even after three years, as we've been discussing, you know, three years here, they're still in a kind of shock. And I was wondering if you had in mind refugees of today or immigrants, you know, as we've been discussing. I mean, was that kind of what you were picturing when you were trying to explore who these characters are? Yeah, I think in a book about New York, it's resonant to write about immigrants since it was a port of entry for many people who came to the United States for the first time. And since, of course, the vast majority of people who live in the United States either came here as immigrants or were brought here involuntarily as slaves. You know, most of us aren't Native Americans. It's a universal experience that's become very distant for a lot of privileged white people. I'm white myself and I'm not an immigrant. My family came to the United States, but long long ago enough that it's not something that's part of my family's immediate history. And so I wanted to, like, because immigration is so tied to race and culture, especially right now with a lot of fear of immigrants and mistrust of folks' motives and increasing regulatory challenges 
to people who are coming here to, to the United States. That is, I, I wanted to write about how it might affect someone who is more like me. Of course, I think there are increasing numbers of refugees and will be because of the climate crisis we're in right now. And it disproportionately affects poor people. But I, I just thought it would be interesting to write about cross-section of New York. So what if, what if folks were chosen by lottery the way men were chosen for the Vietnam draft? And it could be like people of any race, any ethnicity, queer people, straight people, disabled people, old people, anyone over the age of 18 might be eligible. How would those New Yorkers who are not visually distinguishable as other, how would they fare in an environment that sees them as competition and mistrusts them? And how would they deal with their trauma when they're not facing the kind of overt racism that many immigrants face today in the U.S., but they still feel so lost? A game that these refugees play with one another is to talk about what they brought with them, because the circumstances were such that they could only, it sounds like, bring just a very small, like a backpack or something, and it was all very rushed. And what Vikram brought is, I guess, something that any writer or reader can relate to. He brought books. And Famous Men Who Never Lived is, in part, about a particular book. There's a story within a story. And the man who wrote one of the books he brought is one of these famous men who never lived that the title refers to. And his name was Ezra Slight. And I guess he, in fact, lived to a ripe old age in his version of Brooklyn and the version of Brooklyn that Vikram and Hell come from. But he didn't survive his childhood in the Brooklyn where they have come to, our Brooklyn. So that's a long setup to ask a question <laughs> about the book but and about Ezra Slight. So why is Helen in particular so fascinated by Ezra Slight? Because she really takes on his legacy and becomes fascinated by his what he did in their old world and what happened to him in, in our world. As a writer, I've always loved books. And it's tempting to write about characters who love books, too. But I thought it would be kind of fun to write about a character who wasn't a big reader, wasn't oriented in that direction, and had never cared about books before. Hell was a doctor. She was a surgeon in her own world. And now she's disaffected and unemployed and bored. And she's become, she's taken on her partner's obsession. She um, is trying to find the last copy of one of Ezra Slight's books, which Vikram brought in his backpack from the other world. I was thinking about how we carry the stories that we know within us and how those are cultural touchstones. I had to read A Tale of Two Cities when I was in high school, I think in 10th grade. And I can tell you some of the things that happen in that book. I can remember weird details, Madame Defarge knitting and the sound of the tumbrils in the streets. I think they're called tumbrils. What even is a tumbril? you know, the carts that bring the people that are going to be executed by guillotine and that guy that wrote the letter in his blood, all that stuff. I, I remember these like weird details from that book. You're bringing my high school back to me. And Yeah. Did you read it as well? Yes. Yes. I think in, I think sophomore year, but same thing. Same, same details too that stand out. Yeah. So like if we got together, you know, we could talk about, 
I bet if the two of us talked about it for a while, we could dredge up other details that we'd forgotten, you know, but we could never like write it. If I just wanted to like rewrite it or recreate it based on my memory of it, I'd never be able to do it. And that's kind of tantalizing. And so I think that's what this book is for hell is like, it's this thing that she read. She didn't even like it that much. Everybody else she knows has read it too. And now it's completely gone, just wiped off the face of this earth. It's sort of compelling. Well, what I love too is that Ezra Slight's books and his writing were apparently considered high literature and he was a science fiction writer and he was one of the most praised and beloved writers of their place and time. So I, I thought you were getting a little statement in there about science fiction. <laughs> you know, there are science fiction books that are considered classics, but it's generally considered genre fiction. And it sounds like things were different where they came from. Yeah, it's it's funny to think about. I don't know if you get people come on coming on this podcast railing against the low reputation that science fiction has, but it it seems sort of arbitrary. Genre boundaries are arbitrary, and the reputations that different kinds of books have is a little arbitrary too. I think that's true. And if people read as much science fiction as I do, and maybe as you do, they'd see that there's wonderfully, I guess, literary as a way to describe things, but just really rich deep, detailed, expressive writing in in all genres and in science fiction. and Absolutely. There are wonderful books and terrible books of every genre. That should be a podcast. Wonderful books and terrible books of every genre. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, there's at one point Vikram, he's thinking, it's a thought he had about Ezra Slight and the book that Hell is trying to track down, and it's called The Pyronauts. And he's thinking that a book like that is, he says, uh, or he thinks, um, they explore realms of possibility, an improbable future from which humanity was obliged to try to learn, and which could teach readers the most about themselves. And I thought that was a very strong endorsement of what science fiction, I suppose any writing can do, but in particular, he's thinking about you know, books that explore realms of possibility and improbable futures. And I wondered if that was something you agree with, if those were your thoughts. Definitely. Science fiction so often functions as allegory. I think it makes real world issues more palatable and easier to think about when we're a little bit removed. And I mean, I think one of the reasons why the Pyronauts is highly regarded in Vikram's world is because of that allegorical meaning that it has. So it's of interest because it's quote unquote important. And maybe science fiction has escaped that kind of mainstream notice, but I think that science fiction really is important. Speculative fiction allows us to yeah, think about difficult questions and make that seem like fun, which it is. All these brilliant ideas and all these people who never live to fulfill their potential it's very compelling, very fascinating, because one wonders, after reading a book like yours, who wasn't able to do things or who is thwarted. I mean, there's some portraits in there of people, of sort of the duality of people, someone who has made incredible contributions to science or literature in one world, who then lives a more ordinary life in this one, or, or in Ezra Slight's case, doesn't live past his childhood. Yeah, it's not something that everybody thinks about. I think this is my first book, my first novel, and it's kind of stuffed with everything I've ever been interested in. But 
this is a subject of endless fascination for me. Like what, what my, my life has been like, it's that sliding doors effect, right? Like if you just got on the train instead of missing it, what could have happened? And so it was fun to explore, especially lives that happened that bridged that 1909, 1910, when the two worlds diverged, like people who were born in both worlds, but lived two different lives. That's something that I'm interested in. And it's something the characters are interested in too. And that's why hell is so obsessed with finding out what the deal is with Ezra, Ezra slight, because maybe it's important. Maybe that's a key to why the world's diverged in the first place. You talk about those sliding doors. I actually met my husband more than 32 years ago on the subway platform in Times Square, and we were both waiting for a train, and we just started up a conversation, and it was just a matter of minutes that we we could have easily missed each other or gotten on the wrong, uh, different train. So I have lived that. I have lived that experience. That's wonderful, and it's crazy, and I love it. And also, I've heard that kind of thing so many times, you know? Everyone met their partner some weird, chancy way. Me and my partner met in Portland, Oregon. Um, she just moved there for no reason, and I moved there for no reason. I was from, I moved from New York, and she moved from San Diego, and we just both were like, Portland, we don't know anyone there. That seems like a good idea. Wow. And then you went across country to Rhode Island, another, I want to say, random place. That's a very New York-centric <laughs> thing to say. It's a, it's a real and wonderful place, so I don't mean to say it's random. No, I'm not offended. I understand. So as you said, this is your first book, and you put all your ideas into it, it sounds like, are certainly the ones that have been gestating up to this point. So what's your next project? Well, it's not science fiction, I'm sorry to say. I'm writing sort of a crime novel about rival amateur blues musicians in Providence, Rhode Island, trying to get to the bottom of a hit-and-run death of another musician. But I, I do have this idea that I can't let go of about, um, I have read about an, one of the early Arctic expeditions that resulted in great, um, you know, the, the people, the ship that was supposed to meet the men on the expedition, expedition didn't come for two years in a row. They were starving. They ate the bodies of the dead. It's like a study in group dynamics. And I was thinking about how that might have gone down if it had been all women on the expedition instead of all men. And that's not something that can happen or has happened in our world. So I'm trying to figure out how I can do a treatment of that in space somehow and write about a bunch of of women placed into an extreme situation like that and how they might survive. I would love to read that. That sounds like a great idea. Well, thanks. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you and having you on the show and reading Famous Men Who Never Lived. Well, thank you for having me. It was really fun. I've been conversing with Kay Chess about her novel, Famous Men Who Never Lived, which was published this year by Tin House Press. And I want to give a special thanks to at Hugo underscore book underscore club. That's a Twitter handle. And I want to thank them for suggesting I invite Kay Chess on the pod. And I also want to thank everyone out there in podcast listening land for listening. And if you don't subscribe yet, 
please do. And if you don't, you might miss an episode, and that would be like missing an essential nutrient, and you might start getting rashes and blurry vision, and I don't know what other horrible things, so don't risk it. And also, please leave a review. Reviews are a great way to help other people find the show, and it's just a nice way to say thanks for doing the podcast. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Our wise editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Our wily co-editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Visit me at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. And I wish you happy holidays and festive readings.